So turn with me. you got an outline. It's in your uh, paper you received. If you not received one, you can grab one uh, for your uh, study notes. It's just an outline. I figured I'd give it to you. Um, it's attached to your song sheets. Uh, and I want everyone to be on the same page and remember that the book of Revelation is not primarily uh, uh, about end times. <laughs> a lot of people look at Revelation to find out what's going to happen. It, it speaks about future events, but Revelation is primarily and supremely about the beauty and glory and majesty of King Jesus, who's the warrior lamb, come again, coming again to reign and to rule forever. Chapter 1 of Revelation makes that very clear in a prologue, in the prologue. A prologue like no other prologue. And after chapter 1, it kind of sets the pace for the rest of the book. We're not going past chapter 3. We're in chapter 3 today. We're not going past chapter 3, but at some point maybe we will. But we're looking at chapters 1 and 2 and 3, and we're talking and looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. They were not the only churches in Asia Minor. It does appear that Jesus had something to say to them, but it also appears from their location that it was geographically uh, located in such a way that this letter could be shared with other churches in Asia Minor. We said the number seven, seven churches, was a biblical number, symbolic of completion. We'll see that more today. And perfection and fullness and we don't want to miss the fact that these seven churches were written to seven real churches with real people, with real struggles, with real weaknesses, with real problems, and with real needs. But it is a message, as the rest of Scripture, to all churches of all places in all times. We are in this morning the book of the letter of the fifth church to the city of Sardis. Sardis in Asia Minor, we believe, was planted when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. That was the first letter. And was there for a couple of years, and many churches got planted in Asia Minor. And Sardis was one of those churches. Today, it's modern Turkey. And as we read these letters, I, I thought about this this week. These letters are written to churches that are about, about 30 years old. Give or take a little bit. You know, I don't have my wind thing on here. I forgot. Yeah, um, 30 years old. And it made me think as I look back and I'm thinking, King's Chapel is about 23 years old. I mean, we're, we're approaching 30. And I had to think real hard and, and deep this week and wondering what will happen to our church in the future. There's going to be a day, not today, maybe some of you hope it was today that I'm going to resign or die. Hopefully you don't think that. But how are we going to leave the church? How are we going to leave the church? Jesus said what he said to the church is important. Jesus said to the first church in Ephesus that they were loyal, doctrinally sound, exposing false teachers, but yet they lack love to the church of Smyrna. You have love and loyalty and devotion, but God was going to send a test upon them to show them to be true. Jesus said to the church of Pergamum, there was loyalty and love, but there was some holding to false teaching, teaching idolatry and sexual immorality. Jesus said to the third church, Thyatira, that they were doing great things. They, they had love and faith and servanthood. It was remarkable. They were growing in their deeds, but there was a woman named Jezebel. That's real her name, not her real name, but... Jesus looking back to the Old Testament in First and Second Kings. And there was a woman named Jezebel. She, she claimed to be a prophetess. 
She's, sedu- she's teaching and seducing servants to practice sexual immorality, to, to be involved with idolatry. And yet, you guys intolerated her, Jesus said. You allow her to continue. You haven't done nothing about it. But judgment is coming, he said in chapter 2. Judgment is coming. Verse 23. I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But those who are faithful, hold on till I come. Each of these letters that were written so far, and the rest of them, have words of encouragement to close. Jesus leaves them with words of encouragement, words of insurance for those who remain faithful. Those conquerors, those who overcome. The church in Sardis looked great. Looked great to those from the outside looking in. They only saw their behavior, but Jesus says they were dead. Family, God sees the heart. God sees the motive. God sees whether or not there is spiritual life or lack of spiritual life in the church. And King's Chapel, we don't want to look great to everyone on the outside and have God say your motives were not good. There was no spiritual life. You are dead. We want to live in him. We want to be about his business, his glory, filled with his spirit. So what can we learn from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven spirits, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains that is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So, Four things this morning, we'll walk through them. Number one, Christ confronts the church. Verse one, Christ confronts the church. Then Christ commands the church what to do. And then Christ commends the church for the few that are there. And then finally, Christ um, confesses the church, the members of the church, the people of God before the Father. So let's look at this letter together. Verse one, Christ confronts the church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, the words of him... Who hold the seven stars, seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So each one of these churches had a particular characteristics. That had particular characteristics. They were living in a particular time with a particular culture, with particular needs. Five of the seven churches were in serious trouble. Two of them only were commended. Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other five had some sort of confrontation, some sort of uh, uh, condemnation that was going on. As we said in each one of the letters, there's a description. Jesus opens up with a description, a portrait of who he is taken from chapter one. This letter is no different. Each one, if you've noticed so far, each one is very significant to what is going on in that church, in that culture, in that particular time. Now, The city of Sardis, interesting city, 
30 miles south of Thyatira, uh, 50 miles of Smyrna. They were, it, was, it was a loop, all the churches that were written. And, and the word Sardis is in the plural. And the reason is there was two parts to the city. There was, there was this fortress on top of a cliff. And then second, there was, a, there was a, this influenced city um, of commerce on a lower plane that made you know, agriculture, agriculture, industry. And there was on the plane, there was a stadium, a theater, and a huge temple. And all this will come into play in a minute. A huge temple to Artemis that had been started but never finished. Sardis at one point was considered impregnable against any kind of army. They were located in a perfect place, up on a hill, surrounded by cliffs, almost impossible to get in. The fortress was said to be militarily invincible. Sardis was devoted to the worship of a mother goddess. I think it's Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E. If you took philosophy, maybe I got that wrong, you can straighten me out, but I'm calling her that. Uh, And what's interesting about this temple worship in Sardis was you could not approach the temple if you had soiled garments. In fact, you had to put on a clean white robe as you entered into these temples to worship. Now, let me just give you a description of the city, and then we'll move on. By Andrew Tate, he says this, Her worship, Sardis and the temple worship, was of the most debasing character and orgies like those of Dionysus, were practiced at the festivals held in her honor. Sins of the foulest and darkest impurity were committed on those occasions. And when we think of a small community of followers, Christ's Christians, rescued from such an abominable, abominable idolatry, living in the midst of scenes of the grossest depravity, with early associations and companionships and connections, all exerting a force in the direction of heathenism, It may be wondered that the few members of the church in Sardis were not drawn away altogether and swallowed up in the great vortex, end quote. I want you to see that picture because it is to that church, the one that looks alive that is now dead, Jesus reveals himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we know from chapter one and chapter two, the seven stars are the angels, of the seven churches in chapter 2 tells us Jesus holds those angels in his hand, signifying he has authority, sovereign control, he, possession and protection of the church as he holds the seven stars. And the seven spirits of God, we said back in chapter 1, signifies the fullness, seven equals fullness, of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as he Dem, as the Holy Spirit uh, is person and, his, and, and, and the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Zechariah and other Old Testament passages. That's what Jesus is saying. The Spirit is there. He holds the Holy Spirit. It, it emphasizes omniscience and wisdom and life-giving power. It's the Holy Spirit that fills us and energizes us for service and to work and equips the saints for the work of the ministry. Do you see what Jesus is saying to this church? Christ has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and you, Sardis, do not. Sardis doesn't have the Spirit. They are dead. And the very hard reality is that they were performing these great works. They had a wonderful reputation in the city, in the community. But they were dead. They were spiritually dead. That's a frightening, frightening announcement. 
This description of Jesus is, is exactly what was missing in the church of Sardis. Here's a, a, a church predominantly without the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm confident it didn't start that way. It ended up that way. This is a church that most likely everyone stopped to take notice. And, and yet here they're at that place where she appeared to be healthy and successful, but she was dead. There was a time, there was a time the spirit was present. There was a time the gospel was preached. There was a time people were coming to faith and being baptized. But that was in the past. Now all they had was a name, an outward reputation. And what's interesting is right outside the city, there was a, a necropolis or a cemetery with graves of, of long Long ago, dead kings and the church at Sardis, unfortunately, represented the cemetery that was outside the city rather than a vibrant church. What caused his death? Well, most likely they had compromised their witness, the public testimony to Jesus and the gospel, maybe, maybe to avoid opposition and persecution. Maybe they were trying to blend in. We talked about this and kind of emulate the culture, just go along with the culture. Remember, we're not to escape the culture, not to emulate the culture, we're to engage the culture for the cause of the gospel. Maybe they're just going along. And, and the city <laughs> was a city that was dead. How can we avoid? How, how can we at King Chapel avoid, avoid what Paul told Timothy to avoid in 2 Timothy 3.5? Having the appearance of godliness, but been denying its power. Avoid such people. How can we be assured that the Holy Spirit is welcome in this place? How can we be assured? Is it loud and lively singing? Is it a charismatic teacher, a regular words of wisdom? Is it even good deeds and the hard work that we are reaching out to the community? Well, Jesus does an autopsy. He says, this church is dead. But as we know, there is a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Come on. Because mostly dead is what? Slightly alive. With all dead, there's only one thing to do. Come on, somebody. <laughs> go through his clothes and look for loose change. Got to go see the princess bride. Okay. Christ confronts the church. Christ commands the church. Look with me at the second point. What can be done? There's a, there's a faint heartbeat. There are some. Jesus, the head of the church, hears this traceable pulse. He's the head of the church. Because there's a traceable pulse, he's mostly dead, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope of recovery, hope of restoration, hope of revitalization. The condition is critical, but it is not fatal. As long as Christ is alive, and he will be, and as long as he's still speaking to the church, there is hope. And now Jesus gives a five imperatives to the church. In rapid fire, he sprays the church with five imperatives. Imperatives are commands at what they need to do so they can be once again the church, the body of Christ, filled with the Spirit. And let's go through each one of them quickly here. Number one, look what he says. Verse two, wake up. Literally be watchful. Actually become, stay alive. Get awake. The Greek text is, uh, uh, stresses continuously. They must always do that to be on the alert. There, there are internal and external dangers. As I said, this city was uh, 
uh, a place of, uh, of a fortress, impregnable, and yet the city fell twice to military slothness, 549 B.C., 195 B.C. And I read a story this week, and, and I, I, you know, I read stories. I want to make sure it's accurate. I, I found other people. Al Mohler mentions this as well, Dr. Al Mohler, that the city was, again, a fortress, military secure, but one of the watchmen at night dropped his helmet, and he went through a passageway, a secret passageway to go get it. <laughs> and the enemy were watching. Say, oh, that's how you get in. Sure enough, followed him right in and destroyed the city. The negligence or the sleepiness of the defense of the city caused it to fall. So here is this city who, 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 who for a long time says, we, we cannot be overtaken, we cannot be destroyed because of their complacency, was destroyed. And now Jesus says to them, you remember those days? Wake up. Don't fall asleep. Just like you did, don't fall asleep. Daniel Aiken, a lack of faithful vigilance is a certain recipe for disaster. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. How many of y'all, and I, I, I'm guilty, live in yesterday's victories? I stay there way too much. Wake up. Second, strengthen what remains, what's about to die. I have found your works. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Strengthen, to make stable, to stay firm. The verb carries the idea of urgency. Do it now before it's too late. They looked impressive, but it was incomplete. Just like Artemis. Man, we talked about that. Just like Artemis. They had built this temple. They were, they were in the middle of it, and then it was left for ruin. They didn't have enough strength to get it done. It was never completed. That word complete to fill, to make full, satisfactory, fulfillment, acceptable. Jesus, in the midst of their works, that got them this great reputation, says the church deeds were incomplete. No Holy Spirit, no Holy Spirit empowered behind it. Jesus sets the standard. Jesus set the standard on what counts and doesn't count when things are done in his name. Not us. He does. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit, expressing him, uh, uh, express to him works of gratitude, faith, and love toward God and toward neighbor. MacArthur writes this, Church may be socially distinguished, may have all of its programming, but its spiritual graveyard and it works our grave clothes, a poor disguise for an ecclesiastical corpse, a church gathering corpse, end quote. So what are they to do? They are to wake up, stay strong. Three, re- remember. Remember then what you have received and heard. Like the church of Ephesus, they are to remember. The verb means, uh, uh, seems to point not to yesterday. Don't remember what happened yesterday. But remember back in the day. Remember back in the day. Back in the day when you what? When you receive the gospel. When you receive the gospel. They, they are to continually recall the gospel, the truth of the gospel that they had received and heard. Again and again, they and we need to remind ourselves of what Christ has done. His body that was broken. His blood shed on the cross. His glorious resurrection from the grave. Christ himself lived the life 
that they and we should have lived. He died the death that they and we should have died. And yet Jesus takes our place and and experiences the wrath of God in our place. That wrath that should have been poured out on us. And he pays the penalty for our sins. The penalty and the payment that we should have paid. He dies as our substitute. Remember the gospel. Wake up. Strengthen yourselves. Remember the gospel. Fourth, keep it. Look at verse four. To hold on, to guard. That's what that word means. Do you, do you know how a church uh, gets off life support? You, you want to know how, how a church dies? Holding or not holding to the gospel. And let me, let me make, this, let me make my, a point that I want to I be really clear. There are churches, and I don't want us to be one of them as a reminder for us. There are churches that believe the gospel, but it is somewhere hidden in the ministry. It's somewhere hidden in the work of the ministry. They're not holding on to the preeminence of the gospel. They didn't completely abandon it. I mean, they put the gospel somewhere down the line of importance. And when that happened, watch the church die. Again, like Sardis, they were doing wonderful work. Even things like feeding the poor, caring for others, maybe even fighting for justice, yet they were dead. Why? Because they were not considering what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15 of first importance. First importance. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, the church must care for people. They must love people. They must fight for justice. They must do all those things. But never should that be the driving force of the church. The church lives and breathes, as our statement says, for the gospel, for the glory of God and the gospel. We talk about it here, demonstrating and declaring the gospel. Our first core value is eternity gospel redemption because the gospel is the only answer to what really, ultimately, eternally matters. Everything else is remote, remotely comparable to that which is eternal. May we never forget the gospel. May it always remain the main thing here at King's Chapel, the the precious treasure that we never take for granted. It is easy to slide into error. You don't slide into truth. It is easy to slide into compromise. You don't slide into standing firm, strengthened in the gospel. We don't want to send the poor, the needy, those who are fighting for social justice, to eternity separated from God because we have not kept the gospel as first importance. Wake up. Strengthen yourself. Stand up, right? Remember the gospel. Keep it. And last, repent. Repent. Fourth church out of five, he calls to repent. So if you ever hear of any Bible teacher, I keep saying this because they're out there. If you ever hear any Bible teacher that says Christians should not repent, there's no need, it's an affront to the gospel, tell them to go talk to Jesus who just said to four churches they need to repent of their sins. Jesus himself is calling us to repent. Now, I, I know repentance is, is, is part of conversion, right? There's faith and repentance. But I believe, I think there, there are times that we forget that it's an ongoing place in a life of the church, in the life of Christ ones who love Jesus. There's an ongoing sense of repentance. 
where we are, we are turning from sin, we are confessing sins as we grow and mature in our Christian life. It's a change of mind resulting in, in a change of attitude and action. It is to be our companion throughout our walk, throughout our pilgr- uh, without our walk with Jesus. We never grow out of it. We never grow mature that we don't ever need to repent. Never, ever, ever go beyond the grace, and I say that, the grace of repentance. And as a result, look what, if they don't repent, they're going to stay asleep. They're in danger of what? Receiving an unexpected visit from Jesus. If you will not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. And you know what hour I'm coming against, you won't know. And we see this this imagery of Jesus coming as a thief. We see that in the second coming. But that's not what it means here. I think he's literally talking about, not literally like he's going to show up, but through the spirit, through, through circumstance, through difficulties, through certain things that were going on in the church, he's going to show up. He's closing that place down. He's removing its lampstand. They will no longer be a church. And you know what? They might be as vibrant as they've always been. They don't even know the lampstand's been removed. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. Wake up. Strengthen. Stand. Remember the gospel. Keep it close. Never let it go. What you've heard and received. Repent. Turn from your sin. Don't keep compromising don't live in the flesh without the spirit's power and look at the commendation he gives verse four yet you have still have some there in sardis there's a few names people have not soiled their garments they will walk in white with me in white they they are worthy and among the ashes there's these embers and jesus is saying there's a few just a few that are there and it needs a wind it needs a it needs fuel to, to fire up and to begin to burn again there are some there that have not soiled their garments. That means to color it. Garments are symbols of, of their spiritual life, their moral conduct. There's, there's a few who have not soiled their garments. Remember we said that in order to enter into the temple area, what did you have to do? You had to clean your clothes. You had to put on a white robe in order to worship their false gods. And what Jesus is saying to them is the opposite is true. No matter how clean your outer garments are, your souls, your souls are soiled with idolatry. But clinging to Christ, we get to walk with him in white. We get to walk with him in white. White represents purity and victory. And there, there are some that, that, will, be, that will, will have victory. There are some that haven't stained or polluted their garment. they have walking with Jesus with a righteous and godly life. Just a few. Oligos, a, a very few. How? How are they how are they walking in white? Are they living a perfect life? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, they 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 they're clothed in right by confessing the name of Jesus, by not joining in with idolatry and immorality. They they were gospel people who confessed their sins, repented from their sins, they trusted in Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, they obeyed his word. And for anyone who does not defile themselves in Sardis, Jesus says, You are worthy. You are worthy. That's what, it's, that's what the text says. What made those saints worthy in Sardis? Was it their perfection? Again, I don't think so. Was it their faithfulness? Yes. That they were willing to stand on the truth of the gospel no matter what the costs were. One commentator writes this, although these few believers might be regarded as odd and out of step with their culture, they steadfastly walked in the footsteps of apostles and other Christians who brought 
to them and taught to them the gospel of salvation, end quote. It is that same faithfulness of listening and responding and worshiping the Lord, trusting him, obeying him, that he will clothe us in right. Now, this is not a sense of earning your salvation. That's not what we're saying. This is a sense of walking, following, and obeying the Lord. So I don't want to go too far into this and for you to walk away think, you know what, I have to obey God, I have to walk with him in order to be saved. No, salvation is a gift of God by grace alone. It's not our works, it's not our deeds that makes me right with God. We're accepted by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me be perfectly clear. The ability to wear white garments is ultimately and foundationally not because of what you've accomplished, but what Christ has accomplished for us and in our place. Our deeds, as an effort to save ourselves, the Bible calls them filthy rags. But by listening and responding and obeying, following in Jesus' footsteps, through his atonement, because of the cross, because we are declared forgiven and justified by the work of Christ alone, there is a worthiness in that sense of putting on the deeds of Christ and walking in them. See what happens first? Salvation is first, the free gift of God. But then the sanctification process begins for the Christians and we do the things that God wants us to do. Not the other way around. That's religion. I obey and God will love me. The gospel is God will love me because of Christ and all that he has done and therefore I obey. Very different. Very, very different. It is Christ's perfect life imputed to us by faith. It was his blood on the cross that was shed and washes away our sins. Come, Isaiah says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. It is Christ who will clothe us because the righteousness done is not our own. It is through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we have Christ confronts, Christ commands, Christ commends, Christ confesses. Look with me, verse 5 and 6. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The conquerors, the overcomers, the victorious ones will be provided a threefold promise. Look with me quickly. First, They will be clothed in his perfect righteousness we already talked about. White garments provided by Christ, symbolic of their justification, meaning their forgiveness of sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's the white garments that they're put on. And it's actually in the passive voice. We'll be clothed, demonstrate that God was doing the clothing. That final clothing will be Christ. He will dress us because we cannot dress ourselves in righteousness. He does for us what we do not deserve and we cannot do for ourselves. Christ will put us in white garments. Second, he won't erase our name from the book of life. Look at that. It's a strong double, double negative. I will never, no, never, ever remove, blot your name from the book of life. The heavenly registry of, of eternal life that John says in, in chapter 17 of Revelation that was written before the foundations of the world. Back in the day, there was two ways you get your name removed from, this, from the city. One, when you die. And the second one is if you committed a crime, you'd be removed from the census and from the city tally. And God is saying here, now listen, be faithful, hold on, stand up, be strong, and you will have your name 
in the book of life. Doesn't mean you could lose it. A lot of people see that first and say, oh, well, you know, he's not going to blot my name out. That means he possibly could. That's misunderstanding the verse. This is not a, this is not a warning. This is a promise. Not a warning. It's a promise. Don't read into it. Clothed in white, never blot your name out of the book of life, eternal life. And third, what does he say? He will confess you before the Father. What that means is he knows you, he loves you, he saved you. You have an intimate, bound, wonderful, spirit-filled relationship with him, and he will confess you before the Father. Lou is my child. I died for him. He's not ashamed of us. Remember Matthew 10, so whoever... So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before the Father who is in heaven. The promise that our name is a permanently affixed signature in the book of life. We are clothed as white, as people of God, cleansed from sin, victorious over death, given the righteousness of Christ, should move the church to be spirit-filled, to be motivated and compel us to be gospel people, to love people, and by love and grace do the work of the gospel, bear our witness, pursue purity, and, and reflect the transforming work of the gospel. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, are you listening? Pastor Lou, are you listening? Church, are you listening? Maybe you're here today and you're dead in your trespasses sin. The Bible would tell us to, to wake up, that the Holy Spirit can awaken you. And your call to repent means to turn from sin. To turn from sin and to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're a father of Christ and, you, Christ and you've been sleeping and you're slothful, indifferent, he says, remember the gospel, repent of your sin and hold strong. Maybe you're vibrant and alive today and you want to just remember and rehearse and stand on the promise of God. Where are you this morning? Do you not know Christ? Are you asleep in Christ? Or are you rejoicing in Christ? I'll let the Holy Spirit do his work uh, among us so that you can respond in a way that brings glory to him. Now, I want to close. I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. And I was thinking about our King's Chapel's mission statement taken mostly from Matthew 28. And understanding dead churches, live churches, spirit-filled churches. And, and looking at Matthew 28, just, just listen to me for another two minutes. We consider what's being alive and filled with the Spirit. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So as you are going, as you are living, as you are uh, uh, demonstrating the gospel as missionaries wherever you are, Make disciples of all nations. How? By sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit that, that awakens the soul. It's the Holy Spirit that shows us and convicts us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us eyes of faith and grants us repentance. It's the Holy Spirit's work as we proclaim the gospel to turn people from darkness into light, to reveal the beauty of Christ. Make disciples of all nations, spirit-filled, Spirit poured out on people as they, they see their sin, see the beauty of Christ, and given the gift of faith. And then what does he say? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Walk in it. Teach the word in order to know and to obey Christ. You know why this church was almost dead? There was no Holy Spirit power. 
It's because they weren't working intimately with Christ and, and having the gospel be the main thing. Not only people coming to faith, but growing in the gospel. We talk about that here all the time. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, when he would be given to the world, Jesus said, the helper will come, I will send it from the Father, the Spirit of truth. He proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, Jesus says. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is declaring the good news of the gospel. That's what this church was lacking. In pagan religion, it was forbidden to enter the temple with soiled garments. So a person had to be clean in order to come to the temple. All religions, all philosophies have the same thing going on. Christ, however, invites the soiled, sinful people to come and he will give them clean clothes. To the right of me, there's a baptism tank. Christian baptism is the immersion of the follower of Christ, a believer in Christ in water, in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience, symbolizing their faith in the crucified, buried, risen Lord, that they will walk in a newness of life, that they've died with him and rose with him and now live in resurrection power and live in a new life with Christ. That's what, that's what baptism symbolizes, an act of obedience, Matthew 28. A picture, an identification with Christ, the Lord and the gospel, Romans 6. is an act of identifying believers with the whole body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. So Pastor Ricky's going to lead us with a song of response. And I'm going to ask you, do you know Christ? Have you acknowledged your sin before a holy God? Have you received the provision for the forgiveness of your sins? That Jesus lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and those, those who call upon him will be saved. Let us sing together that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Let us respond together. Let us stand. Father, thank you so much for this word to Sardis. Thank you, Father, reminding us what of his in first importance. May we never, never, never lose sight of that as a people and as a church. And may we, we be filled with your spirit that we would demonstrate the gospel, yes, with love and good deeds and fighting for harmony, racial harmony, and inju- against injustice, and do all those things that you call us to do, but to never, ever forget the truth, the eternal truth of Christ of the first importance. Help us to respond now, right, uh, as, we, as we sing in faith to you and trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.